I'm the pastor here, and um, including this morning, as we said earlier, we have three Sundays between now and Easter, uh, which is um, kind of the you know the big day of the year for us. Although every Sunday is a Resurrection Sunday, um, and if you uh, know and practice the season of Lent, um, in many traditions that practice a fast as part of Lent, Sundays are not included as part of that. So. Um, just because the resurrection overtakes everything. Uh, that's kind of the idea behind that. And so um, we have three weeks. And so originally I had something else planned for these three weeks. Uh, but over the last number of months and a lot of my conversations with a number of you and, uh, and even honestly some of the kids at youth group that I was a part of for a, a couple of weeks where I got to teach. Uh, and then some of the questions that I've just asked by people in the community. Um, I thought it would be good to just kind of do like a, a not really even a series, but just a uh, three weeks on some of the questions that uh, most of us have when it comes to Christianity in the church. Uh, we did this about four years ago now, and so we're going to touch on some of those same things, but uh, good things to go over again. Um, and so these are some questions that kind of happen when it comes to our faith and how it plays out in real life. And so sort of the two most common buckets of questions uh, that I get asked when it comes to Christianity. Like people find out you're a pastor and, oh, well, what, are, what do you think about this? Most commonly, um, they are in the next, in, in these two buckets of sort of uh, the problem of pain and evil and uh, questions surrounding sexuality. So we're going to cover those things in the next three weeks. Uh, but today, what we're going to cover is can we trust the Bible? Uh, and so the reason for that is because I'm going to give you answers out of the Bible for those other questions. And so let's talk about the trustworthiness of the Bible to kind of set the foundation. So here's where we're going to go today. Can I trust the Bible next week? Kind of what's the deal with God and sex, right? Um, all the questions kind of around that or as many of them as we can cover in half an hour. And then week three, as good as we can do of a job on why is there evil and suffering in the world? If God is good and if he's powerful, what's the deal with evil and suffering? Um, and so the reason for the order of that is that ultimately we get to Easter uh, on that fourth week from today. And so um, th this is kind of a couple things that I'm hoping this will do for us. I just want to engage those of us who have these questions, which is if we're intellectually honest, all of us have some version of one of these kind of questions. Um, and so maybe there's some of you watching online or maybe you run into people uh, if you're part of our church and you've wondered these questions or you've been asked these questions. And so um, I'm hoping to at least try my very best to give you at least some answer, uh, and maybe that will draw you into wanting more answers if you're kind of a skeptic. Um, but I also want those of us who don't feel like maybe we have any questions with Christianity um, right now to listen in sort of on some of the kinds of questions that people ask so that we would understand how, to how, do, you, how do I engage these kind of questions? What, what do I do when someone asks me why is there suffering in the world? Um, and so I, I hope also you walk away with a little bit more of an ability to feel confident that you can give some kind of an answer, uh, not that you're going to answer someone in the middle of a moment of suffering or somebody who is willfully objecting to Christianity. Um, you may not be able to give an answer that's going to flip the script on that, but you can engage in conversation. Uh, and so, again, the question of evil and suffering is probably the most common question. It takes a bunch of different forms, uh, but it's an old question. And so I want to cover that on Palm Sunday because that's the day that really marks the beginning of the week where we ultimately see God's answer to dealing with pain and suffering, and that's the uh, person and the work of Jesus ultimately in his passion on that holy week. And so before we get to that, though, um, we're going to get to the question of can we 
trust the Bible. And so I just wanted to pray before we start specifically for this, and then we'll dig in here. Jesus, thank you again uh, for allowing us to come here, and we ask that you just give us eyes to see and, and ears to hear and minds open uh, to engage this topic of our sacred text uh, with one another this morning and as we even go out from here. Lord, I ask that this would draw questions out of us that we don't quickly have an answer for so that we would be drawn into the scriptures and ultimately into life with Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. Okay, so the first thing we want to understand is that doubting the Bible is not a new thing. Um, I've run into a number of people who kind of think like, oh, well, we're past um, those, you know, silly old ancient people. uh, And so that's why we have doubts. And that's why they just, you know, they believed in fairy tales. And so, you know, we're just we're just kind of better than them. But the disciples who were with Jesus himself struggled to believe what they had read in their own Jewish scriptures, and and Jesus kind of addresses this. One of the best examples is when Jesus is talking with some of the disciples kind of incognito after the resurrection. Um, After the resurrection, which remember has been prophesied about in the Jewish scriptures for many, many years, we see this in Luke 24. Two disciples are walking along a road to another town called Emmaus, uh, and they're basically talking about how they they just can't believe all the things that have happened. And what we see is Jesus is with them, and they don't know it's Jesus. Uh, They're kept from recognizing him. And then Jesus asks them what it is that they're talking about as they walk. Here's the conversation. This is from Luke chapter 24. This is the the end of verse 17 and on. And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? And he, Jesus, said to them, What things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some of the women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and they did not find his body. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that he had... They had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they, but him they did not see. And he had, and he said to them, "O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things to enter into his glory? A couple things just right off the bat. Number one, just notice Jesus asks them what things, but he knows what things. Again, in the Bible, when God asks you a question, it's not because he doesn't know the answer to the question. It's because he's engaging with you. And that's what Jesus is doing here. Secondly, don't get thrown off by, oh, foolish ones. This is kind of a, uh, an, a term of almost endearment. Like, oh, you little ones, don't you get it? Right? And so he, he's like, do you not believe the things that are in the Bible? Right? We see it summarized in verse 25. He says, they're slow of heart to believe what is written in the prophets. Now, the prophets is a kind of a summary way of saying the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures that they would have had. So before any of us begin to believe that we're the first ones that have skepticism and doubts about our own sacred text, if we're, that we're somehow intellectually beyond ancient gullible people, understand that Jesus' own earthly followers struggled to believe in the scriptures in this way. They had their own doubts. The key, though, is the way that Jesus responds to them. How does he respond to them? I love the humanity in him. Like, there's like a 
playful frustration in Jesus. If you know what I mean. Parents, you know what this feeling is, right? Really? Like, I love you, but come on. And that's what he says. Really, do you not know or do you not believe the scriptures? But then what he does do in response to their doubts about the scriptures is that he gives them evidence to show them why they should believe. Look at verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, so the the Old Testament, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So what Jesus does here is he shows them why they should believe the scriptures concerning him. And in the end, as Christians, this is what we need to know. The Bible is about Jesus. Right? The Bible is about getting us to Jesus. We don't worship the Bible itself. We, we revere it. We think it's holy. But we don't worship it. There's a difference there. But what if we're not Christians? Or what about those people in our lives who doubt the legitimacy of the Bible? Right? I've heard people say it's like a book of fairy tales. And, and, it, and unless you have this framework, I mean, there's parts of it that, yeah, kind of sound like that. Have you read Daniel? It's wild. This is why I wanted to start this series with this question, because all of the answers, or at least most of all the answers in the next couple weeks are going to come from the Bible. So let's kind of lay a foundation of coming to terms with evidence for being able to trust the Bible. And this isn't all of it, uh, but this is, I think, this is the ones that kind of matter to me. Now, there's a number of questions we could choose to deal with, but one of the more common ones, maybe you've heard this, is some version of the question that the Bible has been changed over, uh, changed over and over when it's been copied, right? Like, so it's, um, m- many of us assume uh, wrongly, though, so let's kind of take this assumption apart. It's been changed because it's been copied a bunch of times. Well, um, we might assume that in the ancient world, their methods of copying information were unreliable, right? They didn't have copy-paste. They actually had to do it. And so therefore, we assume, or many people assume, that the Bible we have today is largely changed from its original manuscripts. And so the classic example we would use, like if I was teaching this to kids, we would talk about the game of telephone, uh, which actually doesn't work with them anymore because they only know FaceTime, and it's like they don't get it, uh, and I feel old. Um, But it's said, like the game of telephone is right, if... Uh, you, you give one piece of information, it's a fun youth group game, give one piece of information to somebody, they whisper it to the next person and the next person, and then the last person, after like 10 or 15 people, says, you know, whatever it was, and it's completely different than how it started, right? And so we might assume that um, th- this is kind of what's happening. Um, if all we're doing is passing info from one person to the next, then obviously there's going to be mistakes, and those mistakes will get compounded over the years as more and more copies are made. But what this fails to take into account is sort of the culture of the scribes, especially among the Jews of the ancient Near East. This is their profession, and it's part of their religious experience. They care deeply about getting this correct, and so they're highly trained. And the way that this would work, and and if you ever want to see this, you go to the the Museum of the Bible in D.C., and they sometimes will have an actual person who is a scribe doing it, and you can watch how it would have worked. Um, and, and so the way it would work is that one scribe would be doing the actual work of carefully copying the text from, from one manuscript, making a copy of the next one. And while he was doing this, two other scribes who are just as qualified as him would literally hover over his shoulder and watch what he's doing. And, and uh, if any mistake was made, they would stop, they would correct the mistake, and they would each have to initial where the correction was made or the copy would be destroyed. So this was a serious 
process. And so this devotion for the text is still seen in many people in the Jewish faith even today. For the average non-Jew, though, this is probably why this question exists. We don't have an equivalent for this. We don't like have, we don't, this doesn't make sense to us uh, to have this kind of devotion to a sacred text in our own culture. So we tend to put modern biases on this idea and we can dismiss the accuracy and the care that they would have taken uh, to do this. In actuality, the Bible is one of, if not the most credible ancient documents that we have in existence today. Uh, there are way, way, way more copies of um, the ancient texts uh, compared to other ancient texts that are accepted by many skeptics of the Bible. Okay, so let me give you some examples. The Greek historian and the general Th uh, Thucydides lived from 460 to 365 B.C., Okay, or BCE, if you want to use that terminology. And he wrote a lot of what we know about the Greco-Roman culture in his time. Now, his writings are generally really trusted by historians. Uh, we have eight copies of his writings. Uh, with the earliest copy being made, listen to this, 1,300 years after the events that the writings record. Okay, And we trust that one. We all know Alexander the Great. Um, we only have two copies of his biography, and these were made some 400 years after Alexander died. And yet, these are seen as authoritative, trustworthy in terms of their historical accuracy. So how does the Bible stack up against this? Well, in terms of copies, there are well over 25,000 copies of the New Testament documents in existence today. And the time between the events that happened and the documents that record those events uh, is something like 50 years. So really short and a lot of copies. Now, what's the significance of this? Well, it means uh, that there were still people alive who would have been able to remember these events as they happened. Anybody in here willing to raise their hand and admit they remember a, an event that happened 50 years ago? Any of you? No, that you were alive for. <laughs> that you were alive for that you remember. Okay, so if somebody came to you and said, hey, this event happened differently, you'd be like, nah, I was there. I remember, right? And so... This is significant. So if someone wanted to mythologize, right, the life of Jesus, you're going to have a much harder time doing it because even Paul says, right, in 1 Corinthians 15, there were over 500 witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus, and many of them were still alive at the time that he wrote what he did that's in your Bible in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, we'll get back to that because what that passage is talking about is the most important event in history. Not in Christian history, but in history. Uh, and if the Bible is reliable, you have to do something with it. So another reason to trust the historical accuracy of the Bible is also seen there in the writing of the New Testament. The writers do things that you wouldn't do if you were trying to make up a myth or if you were trying to make stuff up and gain power. First, the first thing they do is they use real names in real places. And this has been shown over and over to be accurate. Uh, example, in the Gospel of Mark, when the writer Mark is referencing the man who carried the cross for Jesus, he calls him Simon the Cyrene and says that he is the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now, why does he do this? It's because he expected at least some of his readers to have known who those people were. Oh, that's Simon that I know, that I've seen. And so if they doubted, they could go ask Simon himself about what Mark had written. You don't do that if you want to make things up if you want to make a myth up. The other thing the writers of the Bible do is they use what uh, Pastor Timothy Keller calls counterproductive content, right? So if what you're trying to do, and this is an accusation, if what you're trying to do is build power 
by showing how impressive Jesus is and how impressive you are by association, you aren't going to write things into your manifesto that make the founder and that make you look bad. Okay? The classic example is a request made by James and John. They'd be the first at Jesus' right hand. They got their mom to ask for them, right? So they look like whiny, power-hungry, immature believers, not noble, worthwhile-to-follow founding members of a new religion. So why is that in there? Because it really happened. Peter, who's nicknamed The Rock, is always doing stuff to make himself look bad, all over the place, most pointedly denying that he knew the founder of this new movement, Jesus. You wouldn't put that in there if what you're trying to do is build cultural power and influence. Or what about Jesus' own doubts and struggles in the garden and even on the cross? On the cross, Jesus screams out that God has forsaken him. This shows weakness, but it shows power in his weakness. And that's not how you build a cult, if that's what you're trying to do. You don't put that in the text if if you're trying to build up a mythological power grab text. That's not what the Bible is. It doesn't read like that. You only put that stuff in there if what you're trying to do is record the events that actually happened. So historically, can we trust the Bible? We would argue that the evidence says yes. It's very trustworthy. Now, another reason that skeptical people tend to dismiss the Bible is that they'll say that the Bible teaches archaic practices and beliefs that just don't line up with modern values. And so what, what can we say to this? Well, one of the most common ways that this happens is when we import our ever-moving cultural norms onto the scriptures, onto a totally different time and place, and don't take that into account as we read the Bible. So let me give you two examples, slavery and women. When we hear the term slavery, we tend to think of the African chattel slave trade of North America. That's what I, when I hear that word, that's what I associate that word with. And in this kind of slavery, a slave owner could do anything he wanted to a slave and their family because they were not people. They, they were property. They didn't see them as people. They could beat them, kill them, anything. But this is not what slavery in the Greco-Roman world of the New Testament was like. It's not the same. It's slavery slavery, but it's not exactly the same thing. The reason we go to the Greco-Roman New Testament with this example is that many people take issue with Paul's admonition in Colossians 3, where he says that slaves should obey their earthly masters. This is used heavily by slave owners in the chattel slavery of North America. Uh, And so people say that it sounds like Paul is at the very least accepting, if not actually teaching slavery. Now, if this was the case, This would be a really strong argument against taking the teachings of the Bible seriously because they don't line up with what's right and wrong. However, what we need to understand is that in this time and place, slavery was way different than what we know of with African slave trade kind of slavery or honestly even modern day slavery. People are enslaved today. And and just so we're all clear, the African slave trade was an abomination, right? We all agree on that. There's a high percentage, though, of the Roman population that was considered slaves. Listen to this quote. This is from the Dictionary of Paul in his letters by A.A. Ruprecht. He says this, 85 to 90 percent of the inhabitants of Rome and Italy were slaves or of slave origin in the first and second centuries A.D. 
And slaves enjoyed great popularity in Rome. They were the trusted household workers, teachers, librarians, accountants, and estate managers. So if in this world, here's differences. Slaves were not identified by race. That's not how slavery was identified. They, and they weren't actually owned as we think of it. They were not separated from the rest of society. They could not be treated like the slaves of North America could have been. Uh, slavery in Rome would actually have more parallels to our idea of employment, and you could work yourself out of it in 10 or 15 years in most cases. So when we take the time to do the work of understanding the context of the text of the Bible, we see that Paul is not advocating the ownership of another person. Uh, he's not. But he is simply telling his readers that they should work hard and be respectful of those who are in superior positions over them. Okay? Another good example that I think is helpful to demonstrate uh, is what the Bible has to say about women in the church. Now, one of the gotcha verses of the Bible who, uh, of people who want to dismiss the Bible because it's anti-woman is a, text, is a text just a chapter earlier in 1 Corinthians from where we are uh, where it says this, As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn... Let them ask their husbands at home. All right, ladies, breathe out. I didn't say this. I'm just reading. Okay. Now, this is so not aligned with what our world says, right? It's not. But let's dig just a little deeper than just believing what the culture tells us to believe about the Bible or anything else. If we were to zoom out and read the entirety of Paul's idea in the section of this part of the letter, we would see that he is speaking particularly about the orderliness of gathered worship. That's what he's talking about here. The orderliness of the gatherings that the church is having. He does a whole section on how they're supposed to be doing the gathering in this orderly fashion. And so what we need to know is that the church in Corinth was apparently fairly chaotic at some times, that their gatherings had gotten kind of chaotic. Uh, and so Paul is writing to tell them, hey, this is not how this should be if you are going to learn what God wants you to learn through the gathering, you need some kind of order, right? And this is true of any kind of organization. Start with two or three people. Everything can be pretty free-flowing. You get up over 10, 15, 20 people. You just need to have a little bit of order, right? Now, what does this have to do with the text about women? Well, in this culture, and this is still the practice in some cultures, men and women would have actually sat on opposite sides of the room across from one another. Teo's nodding his head, okay? Uh, and so... All the men on one side, all the women on the other side. And since, wrongly, hear me say wrongly, women were not allowed to be educated like men, there were times when someone would say something teaching from the front, and if one of the women didn't understand what it meant because she had not been given the same opportunities to learn as the men had, she might just shout over to her husband and ask what that meant. Okay? So imagine the chaos of like, even in our gathering here, if one of you is just like, hey, Tom, what does that mean? And Tom was like, oh, well, I think it means while we're trying to do this from up here. And more than one of us starts doing that. Even you've been in a room where people are whispering in the back, right? It's distracting. It's chaotic, right? Go to movies where teenagers are there. It's the worst. So chaos. Um, and, and so... Um, once we understand that, and also once we know that actually Paul gave instructions that included women prophesying, which means that he was assuming that they would be speaking in the gathering, right? Because if we're going to take that verse serious, we, we're all kinds, we broke the rule all kinds of things, because a bunch of you ladies have been talking in here 
when you walked in, right? So that's not, that can't be what it means. And so he's not actually forbidding women from speaking in church because he's a chauvinist and the Bible is so regressive. That can't be what's happening. Actually, look at what Paul says in verse 35. If the women desire to learn, let them ask. So Paul wants women to learn. This is actually pretty subversive in his day. It's pretty subversive for a man in a position of authority to tell other men, hey, if your wives want to learn, let them learn. This is part of the history of education in the Christian church being a really important thing. So this is pretty subversive stuff. What about the Old Testament, though, uh, of issues that are not culturally accepted? Um, this one is kind of actually on the fence now, but um, two quick examples. First, polygamy, right? Does the Bible teach polygamy? And if it does, is that a reason to dismiss what the Bible has to say? We see it all over the Old Testament, but if you dig a little deeper, what you will also see all over the Old Testament is that where you see polygamy, you also see terrible family dysfunction everywhere that it's happening. So, what we fail to realize is that there is a big difference between description and prescription, right? The Bible might describe something that's happening, and that's different than the Bible prescribing what you should do. So you can't make the argument that, quote, the Bible writes about families where polygamy was practiced, therefore the Bible teaches polygamy. That's not what's happening. What if the Bible is actually showing us the story of what happens when polygamy is practiced and subversively teaching us that that is not the way that God intended things to be? And we'll get to this in the next week or two. Another Old Testament example is the ancient Near Eastern practice of what's called primogenitor. This is the practice of uh, giving all of the assets to the oldest male heir. Being the oldest male heir in my family, I'm for this practice, but um, again... What do we see in the way that God acts in the Bible? God almost always chooses the younger son. He uses Abel. He uses Isaac. He uses Jacob instead of their older brothers. So again, the Bible is subversively telling us that we can't blindly accept cultural practice as our norm. You are fish in water, and the Bible is saying, hey, that's water, and you're wet. And you go, what's water? Right? That, that's what's happening. So what this means is that you can't just write the Bible off because it's culturally irrelevant. Understanding the Bible requires you to actually have a little humility and do a little bit of work so that you don't just import the culture that you know onto the culture and time that the Bible was written in. This is at best shallow and uninformed, and at worst it is intentionally uh, intellectually dishonest to do that. What's ironic is that many people who want to reject Christianity on this ground do so because they think that they're too rational for religious nonsense. And what we're saying is, no, bring your doubts and bring your rationality too, and let's, let's talk about it. So let's pretend all of us in here are skeptics about the Bible, and now we've heard this evidence, which, again, is just scratching the surface. But let's say that we're skeptics, and we now have heard this evidence, which... I think is pretty compelling evidence that would lead me to at least give some thought to the idea that the Bible is a relevant, historically trustworthy document that's talking about true things. And if that's the case, then what do I, as a skeptic, now have to deal with 
from the Bible. If the Bible's true, what does it have to say to me? Well, it has a lot to say, right, about morals and ethics and all kinds of things, about the way that God set the universe up to work. But the most important thing that the Bible has to say to you and me is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's the single most important thing in your Bible. If you were a skeptic, what I would say to you is that there's two things about the resurrection that would not be true if the Bible was just a made-up story that was meant to gain power for these early disciples. Number one, the writers of the Bible would certainly not have written that the first witnesses and the first reporters of the resurrection were women. They would not. Maybe you didn't know that, but the first people to see Jesus raised, bodily raised from the dead were women. We read just a little bit ago. And they were also the first ones to go and tell the followers of Jesus who were men about the resurrection. So the very first preachers of the gospel of Jesus were women. And you don't do that if you're trying to build a cult in this Greco-Roman culture. This was actually an argument used by Celsus, a Greek philosopher in the second century, as evidence that Christianity couldn't be true. Right? That's how culturally uh, against it it was. He, he's saying it can't be true because we know that all women are just hysterical and can't be trusted. So there's no way this could be true. But this is what's in the gospel accounts of the resurrection. Again, ladies, sorry. So if Christianity was really after earthly power, why would its sacred text have this in there? But maybe even more compelling evidence for the claim of of, of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is found right there in 1 Corinthians 15. We've already read from it. Right in our very own sacred text is the admission that if this one central event is not true, then we should be, Christians should be pitied as fools above all other people because without the claim of the Bible of the resurrection being true, Christianity falls apart. We admit it openly. Christianity completely falls apart if the resurrection is not true. Listen to these words and think about what they mean for your life. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. There is no gospel without the resurrection. So Christians, understand what your sacred text just said to you. There's no middle ground. There's no, well, he was a nice teacher, but I don't know about the miracle stuff and the resurrection. No. Maybe I'll do enough good things and God will let me in. No. If the resurrection of Jesus is not true, there is no Christianity. So, can you trust the Bible? You better hope so. Because the Bible is telling you that if it's wrong about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, you have no chance at redemption. If there's no resurrection, then this life is it. And there's no answer for suffering. There's no reason why you should have any morals or ethics. Just live your life. If the resurrection is not true, there's no Christianity. So, this is what the Bible says. I trust it. I, I, I want to challenge you to trust it, to believe in it. But I also want you to challenge and believe what, what it says next in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man, that's Adam, came death, by a man, Jesus, has come also 
the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then in his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God, the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And then we jump down to verse 56 of 1 Corinthians 15. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus. So I hope you see it there. This Bible that we have said, uh, the Bible that we have said that we can trust, wants you to know that if you will trust in Jesus, his resurrection victory over death becomes your resurrection victory over death. And here's the way I want to end this morning. I want to just leave you to just deal with that reality without over explaining it and answering every nuance of every question. I have been following Jesus for, I can't remember a before time. And I hope that's a testimony of my kids. I can't remember a time when I didn't follow Jesus. I know theologically there was a time when I was lost in my sins and he re redeemed me and rescued me. But I just can't remember it. So it's been a long time. It's been almost 40 years, right, of following Jesus. And I have questions that I can't answer. Every time something happens to somebody that I love or somebody that seems innocent, I ask God, why? I don't get it. This is unfair. But if the Bible can be trusted, and we would argue that it holds up to the kind of scrutiny that, you, that we tend to throw at other historical documents, if the Bible can be trusted, and I, and I think that I've shown you evidence of that this morning, if the Bible can be trusted, then we must do something with what it claims. You don't have a choice. You have to do something. To not do something with it is a choice. And the most central, important thing that it claims is that Jesus Christ was bodily resurrected from the dead. Not resuscitated, not kind of woken up, he went into a coma. No, he was dead in the grave, and he was resurrected to, in his body to life, thereby gaining victory over sin and death forever. So if that is true, if the Bible can be trusted, and this is what the Bible is saying, what are you going to do with it? Are you going to trust in this Jesus, who the Bible holds before you, or not? Let me leave you with a quote this is from Pastor Timothy Keller, who um, I quoted earlier. He wrote a book. I would encourage you to read it called The Reason for God, Belief in an Age of Skepticism. He says this, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept everything he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you that you have risen from the dead and that you hear our prayers now because you are alive. We thank you that we can trust the word that you have given us over the centuries through your fallen and broken people. We thank you that inspiration has overcome all of that and that we can trust your word to us in the scriptures. But Jesus, we ask that you would give us eyes to see that all the scriptures are about you. They're not about themselves. They're about you. And most importantly, they're about your resurrection from the dead that gains us the kingdom and brings the kingdom to bear on our world. We thank you that the resurrection is a shadow of what's coming. And we thank you, those of us who have lost those who, who know and love you, we thank you that we know one day we will somehow see them again at the resurrection of, of the dead and be with them in the kingdom. And so we, we ask that you would prompt questions in us. Holy Spirit, would you 
prick our souls to ask questions that then we go to the scriptures to find the answers for. We ask that you would do this this week in us so that we would, again, find Jesus in the scriptures. We pray all this in your name, Father and Son and Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen.